Hey everyone, Jarlo Alano, one of the co-founders for GMB Fitness, and uh, welcome to the GMB Fitness podcast. I have here as a guest and one of my friends, and actually we did work together a few years ago. Uh, Stephen Lowe, this physical therapist out. Where are you again? I was in Maryland, but now I'm out in California at the moment. See, that's right. I, I knew you moved, but I, for, I forgot where. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this is Stephen Lowe, everybody. Uh, glad to be here. I think I've done one before, but uh, yeah, it's, it's good to be back. Yeah, I think it's been a while. Um, so if you, ha- you don't know too much about Stephen, uh, we're going to have him introduce a little bit of his background, but he's a... Uh, Pretty well known for uh, the body weight in the body weight exercise community. Uh, how, how long ago was this? About like 10, 15 years ago, you're, you know, you were doing a lot of body weight fitness stuff before you went to therapy school. Uh, and then came your first book, Overcoming Gravity, which is very well received and uh, still very well uh, received and popular. In the second edition, it was just massive. Overcoming Gravity was just a great textbook for for uh, bodyweight fitness. And then went on, finished his uh, physical therapy studies. Now as a clinician, has a couple more books. Uh, and then what I mentioned earlier, we co-wrote Overcoming Poor Posture together a couple of years ago, which was, again, really happy with how it was received and, and – uh, and a lot of good feedback from that. So right now you're mostly doing a lot of work in the clinic. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I'm mostly doing uh, online consultations for training and injuries. So that's, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's how I'm branching out there. Yeah, especially now. So, you know, to be able to do that, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, I was a few years ahead of the game for that for the physical therapy. So. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a lot more telehealth uh, in the last couple of years, but even you know before that, it's just wild to even think of it. And I think even in the profession itself, we're like, oh, how can we do therapy, you know, online? You need to have, you know, need to be with a patient, need to be with with these people. But uh, even you know, we discovered in our company, you know, many years ago, you know, we were able to do a, quite a bit. Yeah, through online. So let's let's talk a little bit about your history before. So how did you get into uh, training and fitness and, and eventually into therapy? Yeah, so I, I did gymnastics when I was younger, uh, up to about 10 or 11 years old. But then I got back into it went in college where they had like an is- exhibitional gymnastics team. Uh, so I took up that. And uh, at the same time around that, parkour was starting to emerge. So I, I joined up in that movement as well um, and from there uh, I got my degree in biochemistry and was like really into working out with gymnastics and body weight strength training um, and then from there pivoted to uh, after I graduated I went to look at uh, physical therapy and medicine as potentially something I want to do in the future and uh, eventually chose physical therapy and um, from there, my, my website actually grew, so I started writing Overcoming Gravity, the book, uh, during that time as well, and that's how it uh, kind of branched out from there. That's a lot of varied interests, actually, if you think about it. I mean, biochem is not therapy. <laughs> well, it can be, yeah. but I mean, it's very distinct. 
So that, yeah, that's a lot of it. the parkour was super interesting too because I actually I remember that, but it it doesn't seem like a that's as emphasized for you in the last you know ten years or so. Yeah, I, I've been more recently into uh, rock climbing and getting outside, especially in Southern California. They have Joshua Tree and all a bunch of other nice places to climb outside. So that's awesome. That for the past several years, I'm sure that the. All the gymnastics training and, and all of that really helpful for climbing. Yeah, it helps some, but I, I think I went too hard on the strength initially, so I kind of neglected technique. But I've been really trying to focus on that in the uh, past few years, which has helped uh, significantly. I think that's a lot for getting into any kind of new endeavor. You really uh, try to work on not work, but you end up falling back on what you do best. <laughs> and it's, you know, in, in, yeah. a, in a trying to get something quicker, or we got to get quicker. So the technique is better is seems to be the mantra for just basically any activity. <coughs> okay. And so right now with your, uh, consultations online and um you basically work with people uh do you do one-offs or do you continue you know do like kind of ongoing training with people it's both um a lot of the injuries i get are kind of one-offs uh or a couple months because um i would say i get more of the tougher cases people have gone to physical therapy in person and maybe had to had it fail for a few times. So um, sometimes it takes a little bit longer, but uh, you, you, most of my injury clients are done in like a month or two. So it's not, not awesome. too long. It's more of the training ones that kind of are more long-term. They want to stick with it. Or some people just want to kind of want to get the big picture, how to train, and then they want to run with it. Kind of both for training and more more one-offs for injuries. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. And that, to me, that makes a lot of sense because uh, with sort of the injury or you know, trauma or even, like you said, uh, chronic problems that maybe they've gone to different people, um, sometimes they just need a different approach, right? And a different tack. And uh, they should be able to kind of be on their own and get going within you know, a month, six weeks, you know, versus being what the, we used to call on therapy as anniversary patients, you know, patients that kind of keep coming and coming, um, which I think is one of the really positives about uh, the way therapy is now versus, you know, I, I graduated in 98 and that was just the beginning of, you know, a lot of the pain science thing. There's still a lot of therapy on that was pretty junk, you know. I, I admit it. Uh, and so it's nice to see this kind of vanguard of evidence-based, but also this practical, you know, and being able to take a lot of your experience from a lot of different areas, your body weight, fitness, gymnastics, and, and bring it into therapy. I think that's massive. It's massive. And so that's part of what I wanted to have you talk about today is your new book, Overcoming Tendinitis. And uh, I think it's a, so you, I remember you sent me a copy a few months ago. I loved it. Went through it. You know, the first, it took me a few days, right? It's, it's not uh, one of the things uh, 
I was talking with my wife, who's also a physical therapist, and we were also showing her the book. She's like, oh, this is great, but it's a little technical <laughs> for, for a lot of people. And, uh, and I, I said, yeah, I think it's, it's awesome. Uh, one of the things you talked about is, you know, this book is meant to provide a lot of information, you know, the best quality information we have to date. That's another hard thing about a book, right? Because evidence continues on, right? And uh, evidence-based therapy and, and informed therapy continues. So anytime you write a book, you know, a physical copy, um, you're sort of setting in stone something that maybe will change. And it's supposed to change. Um, but one of the things I really enjoyed about this book was is that bring everything that's up to date, but also leaving room for okay, what what are we looking at here? What are the principles of um, where you can take this? And so that's one of the things I want us to talk about and for our audiences. What what do you want people to get out of the book? You know, and a couple of really main points that you want to head home for people. Yeah, so the first thing I would say is just dispelling a lot of the myths around tendonitis, uh, especially since it, you know it's commonly known as tenon- tendonitis, but there is very little to no inflammation in uh, tendinopathy, as it's called by most medical practitioners now. So um, if there's no inflammation, you have to treat it differently than you would um, with something like ice, which is used to decrease inflammation, uh, you know, resting and said, uh, pain relievers, the, all those things, you know, aim to decrease inflammation. But, um, yeah, if you're not, don't have any inflammation, then they're not necessarily going to work for actual rehab. Um, and then there's also other things. Um, a lot of the current research has kind of divided tendinopathy into stages, uh, such as reactive disrepair and degenerative. And uh, these things are classified as something that gets progressively worse, but uh, most of the outcomes that you see with good rehab is that people get back to their, you know, normal activities and also sports to a high level. So it's not something that is a, um, it's not something that is a very uh, terrible thing. Like you can't get back to the level of activity you want to. Uh, especially if you've had it for a very long time, even years, there are ways to rehab effectively to get back to the things you like to do. I think there's a couple of important things just out of those, uh, what you just said. Well, first is the the natural inflammatory process, the natural healing process. And uh, when you mention ice, you know, that's kind of a, a bigger thing in the last I don't know, 10 years or so is like not using ice. Right. Versus we used to slap ice on everything and, you know, for hours even. And of course there's a use for it, but uh, the main thing and, and the point I think you're trying to get at is that there is a natural healing inflammatory process that when done correctly is needed. Right. Versus, you know, inf- inflammation that gets out of control and, and all of those types of things, you know, that's distinct. Right. So, it's, it's the nuance of you need an inflammation. You need that process to start and finish, right? Uh, that's one of the, was one of the theories about tendinopathy and tendinosis is that, you know, perhaps you weren't getting out of that first stages of the inflammatory process. You know, and again, sometimes that was uh, disproven in certain, certain conditions, but sometimes it's, it seems like that. Remember the whole uh, cross friction massage 
thing, you know, 20, 30 years ago, which, which is interesting. So cross fiction massage for, for those of you kind of, well, I think maybe, I don't know how many people are aware of it, but it was ostensibly a way to get back to that first part of the inflammation cycle, right? You, you go and you massage on the tendon and then it, you know, supposedly it takes you back into the beginning that i remember that was the theory behind it and it was it's not true right it's not true yeah. but for some reason uh it it was helpful again for for certain people um but th- those are the types of things that we're talking about when we talk about evidence and and the, the evolution of of actually medicine itself not just rehab and therapy uh and then the the other point you made there is that when you you look at these antennosis, tendinopathy, and then people get these scans and get these MRIs and they're looking at all this damage and damage that sometimes doesn't change on those scans. And you can really get like, oh, well, that's it. Like my tendon is hash. How can I get back to climbing or parkour or you know, martial arts or anything? But we've seen it over the years that people can Right, and I think one of the one of the things we've seen, especially over the last five to ten years, is that you know this disengaging uh, that pathology, like that tissue pathology from pain. Yeah, and and I think that's a yeah, I think that's a massive thing in in your work that you're doing with overcoming tendonitis and and all of this. It's like rehab is a is improving your conditioning and your tolerance. So yeah, I think that's super important. Yeah, that's that's also one of the big things we wanted to hammer home, the difference between uh, acute and chronic pain. Like if you're having a lot of tendon pain, but it's like very disproportionate to like the movements you're doing. Like, you know, if you're having a lot of pain with, you know, doing a, you know, one pound dumbbell curl, that's obviously pain disproportionate to the activity you're doing so there's likely at least some semblance of chronic pain there that uh, you need to break and chronic pain is also not something that is like a death sentence most people think it's like oh you're gonna have it for the rest of your life Uh, that's not true it's basically um, the basic the way I describe it is that it's more of a habit that your nervous system built Uh, any normal movement uh, with chronic pain can be movement that causes pain but uh, when you address it with various you know physical therapy interventions you can break that cycle of chronic pain so that normal movements will not hurt anymore mm-hmm. yeah i think that's massive i mean in terms of well just get people moving and they just need to get going and doing all well yes of course but there's there has to be some sort of intermediary between that. You can't you can't just tell people, oh, don't worry about it. You know, it's not as bad as you think. You know, here, just here's some exercises. Keep going. You know, I think the nuance to it is what are the the exercises that we've seen in therapy and in the evidence that are the most efficient, most worthwhile, and that people can do and not get frustrated with. I think that's a massive massive thing I've seen in the clinic and even online is like, okay, when we prescribe certain things to people, it might be, okay, this, this would be the best thing for this person, but you know, what's the reality of them doing it? Like you have to understand the temperament of the person where they're at, you know, 
and this is where it's that consistent um and, and this goes back to what you're why, why you're calling it a habit if, it, if you have the habit of chronic pain and pain associated with uh, some movements to break that habit you need a consistency of replacing it with, with you know with another habit exactly yeah so with with that um i want to kind of take it a little bit practical but when you first uh, encounter let's say let's let's, ha- let's have a scenario you know, case studies are always nice to talk about um so you have a scenario where you have someone who's coming to you for a consult and say they've had elbow you know elbow tendonitis you know whether it's lateral or medial you know the golfer's elbow or the tennis elbow or whatever and they've had uh they've had therapy before and for whatever reason it was not working for them right so say they've had let's go ahead and make this a little bit harder they had like six months six about six months of pain uh they've gone to therapy probably for a month you know six visits or whatnot and then they're they're still having trouble and they come to see you what what would be the first couple things you'd want you know, to go um, over with them yeah so first thing is probably just pain education um especially with somebody who's had it a very long time uh look for signs of you know chronic versus acute pain um, when somebody has the chronic pain, it's usually very disproportionate to the movements um, or disproportionate to the movements you're doing. Um, it's also very usually um, when you do certain movements, it always comes. But like if you passively move the joint, it's usually not there. Then um, do a bunch of comparisons of the strength and uh, flexibility between the the joints. Uh, where the tendinopathy is at so elbow and then also check wrist and shoulder strength as well because uh you can be getting uh, compensations that can go into that area as well and then yeah from from the pain education it's basically um if it is chronic pain then you have to go over a lot of the um information about chronic pain and how it's kind of a habit and you have to work on breaking the habit while getting the increasing the strength and function of the particular area at the same time. Cause as you increase the strength and function, the pain will usually start to go away uh, with the habit breaking stuff for chronic pain. Um, if it's just something that is really acute and was just like very reactive, then obviously you just go the normal rehab route where you uh, get specific exercises to work on that. And what I mean by reactive for tendinopathy is in some cases, some, some an area will get very easily aggravated, like um, depend, usually like with specific exercises, um, the symptoms will really flare up to a high level where it's like, oh, I, I did something really bad when maybe you actually didn't do something like that. So a very reactive tendon, you usually wouldn't go into movement exercises first. You would use isometrics for you know oh first um you know a few days to maybe even a week or two to help the area calm down but still get um keep up the conditioning of the area so it doesn't start to atrophy or lose any of the work capacity that it has. So you would usually do that first. Um, you can use heat usually helps uh decrease your activity 
and then move into regular rehab after that. Or, uh, you know, kind of going back a little bit where you're saying you're doing a lot of consults, you know, online, uh, you mentioned, you know, checking strength, you know, in this case at the elbow, the shoulder, you know, all of that. If you have someone online as a client, how, how would you direct them to check strength, you know, as the assessment there? Uh, usually with as best you can with isolation and exercises, uh, you can use things around the house, like, uh, putting soup cans in like a backpack or, uh, you know, using soup cans themselves as, uh, things, but yeah, just having them go through a bunch of different motions to see, um, how they're doing with them. And oftentimes people are telling me what specific exercises right. I'm for and what, with what weights. So you can kind of get a, a good idea, um, even before you do any testing. Uh, right i think i remember a lot of the kind of objections back uh when people were doing more of this kind of telehealth stuff beginning to and they're like well how are you going to assess like how are you going to do your manual muscle test how are you going to check you know nerve stuff how are you going to do all of that and oh yeah you can't and you can't turn this person or their partner you know or their friend into a you know a professional assessment person, yeah. right? But just like you said, you, you know, through observation, through a good history, you can, you can get a lot from that person. And, and, you know, a lot of times we see that in an evaluation assessment, even in person, you know, face to face that, uh, in the history, that first 10, 15 minutes of talking to someone, you're going to get a lot out of it already anyway. So, and I think that's good to, to know, especially now, right. With the COVID, yeah, you know, people are seeking help. I think it's important for them to to know and be confident that if you have to go uh, get help and it's through a telehealth provider or a consultation online, that it's going to be useful. It's going to be helpful, uh, and it's not going to be like substantially worse, right? And I think we're all. I don't know. And, and when I'm in and being a clinician, I'm always going to be like, well, that's the best if you could come see me in person. Well, sure. Yeah. For sure. But it's also not going to be like 0% helpful to uh, get on like a, a Skype call or, or on Zoom and, and, and treat somebody. Yeah. I've made the estimate that you can do about 90 to 95% of what you do in the clinic. Uh, obviously, you can't do like a lot of hands-on stuff, but you don't necessarily need hands-on stuff because you know, exercise and education is really like the, the big foundation of physical therapy. So, oh, ab yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think uh, a lot of people get tr kind of trapped into I got to use my hands or I got to you know be a manual therapist. And at the same time as being a patient, you know, if you're kind of used to like, oh, I'm here on the table, you know, this person's gonna massage me, you know, manipulate me, do all these things to fix me. And like, that's not really a model that either is tenable anymore or also isn't useful for, uh, for them to continue on and, and take care of themselves. Right. Yeah. You can get negative outcomes with that. Like you get the nocebo, like the person has to be doing this to me to, for me to get better. So they won't get right. better. As right. Absolutely. And then, you know, we're really now, in therapy and rehab and actually even in fitness and training really hammering in the education 
like how can we get our patients and clients to to understand these things right to take it within themselves and uh being able to to go on you know not feeling like they have to have a question answered before they can do anything by an expert right and so you know with your books you know first overcoming gravity and then the second edition and then you know posture and then just tendonitis i think i really appreciate what you're trying to go for there for sure um what what else would you like people to kind of take away from this book overcoming tendonitis i think um I, kind of a so the the science the tendinopathy science isn't really good compared to like a lot of the other science that is out there in terms of like resistance training. Um, in resistance training, you have a lot of um, defined populations where you know you have your beginners, your intermediates, your advanced, and they've done enough studies to uh, show how how much um, exercise, how much frequency. Right. how much volume and load you can use with those particular patients or, or clients or athletes. But with tendinopathy, there's just so few studies and so few, I guess, protocols that you can do. And uh, in a lot of the cases, you get what you get. So you're not able right. to screen the populations for somebody who has had a tendinopathy for, you know, only a few weeks or a couple months versus somebody who's had one, you know, for a few years where, okay, one might be more acute based and one might be more chronic based. And then some people's tendinopathies are more reactive and some are less reactive. So when you're applying these sort of cookie cutter rehab plans to somebody, you're going to get a huge variance of, you know, successes and failures. And then you're not going to be able to Know, kind of distinguish why something failed or why something was successful as good as if you had a more uh, I guess free-flowing approach to how a patient is presenting in person and then adapting to that as I think that's a important thing to think to say because in, in terms of research um, you know with exercise science in particular resistance training uh, it's a longer history for sure it's a longer history, the accumulation of studies and all of that type of thing is r really does matter because in good research, you know, you're, you're trying to cut it down to one variable, two variables. I mean, that's just what it's supposed to be. Um, you know, whether that's useful for, you know, the general population, that's kind of the way science works. And then what you're looking at is an accumulation. You do kind of meta-analyses of everything. Uh, and the, the dif difficulty with tendinopathy and tendinosis and all that is, again, it's relatively young. And so when you have these things where they're trying to find one variable, they're automatically not going to be, like you said, free-flowing and, and understand what the patient, you know, individual patient's going through. But at the same time, you can't do that and have like a research have a research study so i think that's that's a yeah. very important point you know if you're only coming going on 20 years of science versus you know 50 60 that's that's definitely one thing also too is 
what were the models they were using before, right? You know, you're looking at a exactly. lot of sort of tissue models of, okay, what are we looking at when we see this damage, right? And then, so their marker points were like, does this damage improve, right? And then just yeah. like we were talking about earlier, it doesn't. So if you correlate that, then you're like, well, what are we doing to this tissue versus a person that's in pain and, and separating themselves from that, from just, oh, is the tissue damaged versus is this person even in pain? And so that's, I think that's a massive part of, of why the research can kind of fail sometimes. And I think that's really important. Also, too, you're looking at, you know, tendonitis, tendinopathy in particular, so common, so common, right? People have it, they either go and see somebody about it or they don't, right? And then they just have, oh, my elbow's bad, my wrist is bad, my shoulder's bad, you know, and that's it, <laughs> right? And it's they sort of out. get trapped in it. Yeah. Uh, especially difficult for, for people that are athletic, right? Uh, you have a, either you were, you know, not a professional, but competitive, competitive in school. Maybe you're still competitive as a person, even though, you know, you have, it's not your job. You're not a professional at it, but you, you love it. You still enjoy it. You're either going to think, okay, I'll just have to quit it. Right. Which sucks. Or I'm just going to have to live with it and, and do, do it, which also sucks. Cause you don't, those are, those are not the options to me. I think, I think we need yeah. to help people understand help our patient clients understand that, you know, there is that sort of balance of perhaps you have some pain, perhaps you'll have some difficulty doing some things, but it doesn't mean you have to stop. Plus it doesn't ma mean that that has to be, you know, so significant that you have to grit your teeth and, and go through it. Exactly. And like a lot of the, yeah, we've divided a lot of the, I guess, interventions based on how much research there was into major and minor, and then right. kind of tried to classify them as which may help a little bit or like may not help at all. And um, yeah, basically see what the science said about it. And I, I guess the science wasn't too clear in a lot of cases. Uh, so that's why we kind of went with things like may help. Right. <laughs> but, uh, no, yeah. I think that's super important. Yeah, I think it's super important. There's a lot of that. And what I really like, too, in the last few years of, of people trying to, uh, you know, help, not regular people, but help people that don't have this sort of science background, you know, medical background, rehab background, or anything really kind of makes sense of, of the research out here. And I, I really like that approach of may not help, does help, could help a lot you know, versus like no evidence for, right? And that, that was one of the issues I had with the, like a lot of evidence-based practice, evidence-based even fitness is in the beginning or not even in that, but like when people first get into it, they're like, well, that's worthless, right? This right here is worthless, right? Yeah. And to even say that, it's just, it just shows a lack of nuance, right? Or, or, for example, I mean, staying on topic, the, the whole eccentric training for mm -hmm. tendinopathy, 
I remember when that, you know, that first came out, like, okay, that's it. That's all we're going to do then. Right. We're just going to, you know, for uh, Achilles tendon, we're just going to put everybody in the stairs and they're just going to do like sets of uh, negatives. Right. And that's just as bad as not following the evidence. Right. Yeah. Yeah. uh, For those of you who don't know, uh, you would just kind of use both legs to, or the healthy leg to raise yourself up and then go down slowly with your injured leg. Uh, and a lot of the more recent studies are like, okay, it's literally the same, very similar outcome if you do both at once. But, you know, if you're trying to get back to a sport, you need to learn control in both eccentric and concentric uh, contractions, Uh, especially, you know, with running where you're going to be at very high speeds. So um, maybe you're starting slower with both the eccentric and concentric, but then you're also, you know, you have to start speeding it up the plyometrics in the long run. So right. you have to have this uh, kind of continuing building up with both eccentric and concentric and then speeding it up uh, in the long run. Yeah. yeah. Well, we kind of laugh about it now, but that's sort of the example of, you know, taking one thing and just going hog wild with it. Right. Or taking an, uh, a particular research tactic and, and seeing whether it's helpful and then just blowing it out of proportion and just saying, oh, this is it. Right. Which yeah. is which is not great. Uh, and it's, you know, there's a lot to talk about with that. But I think that's what can make it hard for people. Uh, if you're, you know, if you're not going to go and read the research, read all the studies, do all of that, you're going to need yeah, it's helpful for someone to kind of break it down for you and, and kind of look at it and say, well, how can this be helpful for you? Which again, is why I really appreciate uh, what you're doing in the book. You know, I think those are, those are great. Uh, the, the hard part is this is such a big topic. It's so expansive. Uh, and that's why I asked you, okay, let's, let's have just a few things to, to really take home. Um, but I think one of the, you know, why I also earlier like oh let's do a little case study and you know uh, i think that really helps people to kind of frame it uh and then that's also why we asked uh we asked a bunch of our audience so we told them we're going to have you on and uh we're like oh could we have steven low on want want you uh you guys have some questions you know what would be uh would be good and it was great we got a whole bunch so I'd love to go through at least a, a handful of them. I know it's going to be hard to do a lot, but uh, here, let's let's start with this one. So um, this person is saying after he was doing rehab for a while uh, for his shoulder, uh, he says here in particular supraspinatus tendon. Uh, so one of the rotator cuff muscles, the tendon, supraspinatus. And he's, this is a good one because I, I think it's a uh, it can. It's a good general question. So at what point do you think it's okay to start applying force to it and get back into working out? So this is a really, a really common question we always get is I've, I've been injured and you know, whether it's a shoulder or your neck or your back, tendonitis or other type of thing. Uh, that's one of the first questions we get. It's like, okay, I'm going to do the work for it. I'll do the rehab. When can I get back into my training? So what, what would you say about that, Steve? Uh, yeah, so I, I, generally speaking, I got to assess if it's, you know, the pain is chronic or acute and also the uh, level of work capacity and strength 
in the affected area. Um, so depending on if it's acute or chronic, you know, you kind of divide into those as we discussed before. And then as far as the, um, the rehab goes, uh, usually if there's like a lot of pain or very high reactivity, you start with your isometrics first and then move on to your isolation exercises like uh, your rotator, all the rotator cuff because, um, you know, your infraspinatus and teres minor and uh, sub subscap also have uh, a little bit of, a little bit of the function of the supraspinatus, which is to uh, inferiorly glide the humerus at the shoulder joint. So you add in those as well. Uh, and you can even do bicep exercises, uh, long head or bicep exercises for the long head of biceps because that stabilizes the shoulder. Um, and then you got to look at the uh, scapula to see if uh, all those uh, muscles are operating correctly and moving correctly. Um, and if they have the requisite flexibility to like go overhead, if going overhead is uh, painful. So looking at all those things um, and then moving from those isolation exercises as the strength and function are improving, hopefully the pain is decreasing as you move on and then go into compounds after that. And, you know, obviously the process is fluid depending on how reactive the tendon is being during the rehab process, but usually you can move to, you know, your compound exercises, you know, within a, a week or two or maybe a month at the latest and then, you know, get back to your sport by, you know, a few weeks to a month, depending on how severe it is. Obviously the less severe, the a lot of the shorter timeline it will be. Um, but if someone's had it like six months before coming in, it's probably going to be, you know, a few several weeks ish to get back to uh, regular sports specific activity at least uh, from my from what I've seen. Yeah. I think what you uh, you say there about reactivity or irritability is is huge. Uh, I think a lot of people kind of come to the assumption that okay, four weeks from now, everyone who has this can do this. Right. Uh, it's sort of like the protocols that we used to get from surgeons, you know, after, say, the ACL or after the, you know, rotator cuff tears, like, OK, six weeks out, you can do this at this degrees. Right. And it's kind of helpful to have that piece of paper, but it's also not very realistic. It totally depends yeah. on, you know, like you said, it's a fluid process. How is this person reacting? And I think that's really important to to understand, too, is. Even when you're ready, say your strength is good, your shoulder blade mobility is good, all of that stuff is going, and you get you get started, it's it's a wave. You're going to have ups and downs. So to be able to uh, to kind of roll with it and, and auto regulate there is is important, and it, and it's not so much um, okay. I'm six weeks out. I'm seven weeks out. I should be able to do 15 pounds. You know, all that type of thing. Exactly. Um, right. It, it is good to have those guidelines, though, and uh, I think what you're saying is is, is super important. Uh, that yeah, kind of goes. Uh, oh, oh yeah. go one thing, one thing I wanted to add about that is like flare-ups are generally like a normal part of the rehabilitation process. Uh, that's one of the big things I've recently been harping on in my consultations. Um, at, that actually has provided a very, very positive effect. Uh, just like 
because when people have flare-ups, they kind of get this uh, negative mindset and oh, yeah. <laughs> contribute to a nocebo effect, like a worsening of not only their symptoms, but their mindset and the rehab altogether. So yeah, just, just knowing that uh, flare-ups are pretty normal. Uh, you know, sometimes we'll take a one extra rest day here and there. Uh, if we actually added more intensity or volume, maybe we'll dial back. But like, if the rehab program has not increased or decreased, sometimes you get flare-ups here and there, even if, you know, you're, you're doing the same exact thing and progressing very slowly. So um, just continue, continuing to stay the course and knowing that, you know, you're going to have some variation day to day, but as long as the trajectory is, you know, upward in the long run, you're doing good. Yeah. Super important. <laughs> Yeah, even just knowing that it's normal. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good point. And, and that kind of brings us to the uh, one other question, and you sort of answered it already. It's uh, uh, this person asked, you know, isolation versus integration. Is it even good to have like your shoulder isolated from your whole body? And um, well, that's the thing. You sort of have to <laughs> in the beginning, or you sort of have to when if you're into this sort of acute or even high reactive stage, um, it becomes this fluid thing of, I, I think that's one of the things too. And, and the reason I like this question is that it's sort of uh, indicative of, of this kind of, where, where are we at in the trends of fitness and even therapy and rehab? You know, people are trying to do either or stuff now. Oh, isolation is bad. Why should you even isolate it versus you got to, you, you know, you have to use your whole body. You got to do everything together. You know, your body is, is a, is a whole. Well, yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. But, but what, what do you mean? What are you trying to get out of that? It shouldn't be either or what we're looking at, you know, in what you just said is this part of a process. It's part of a process and you have to kind of look at it day by day, event by event. Yeah, you can kind of think about it as what I, what I explain is uh, you can think, think about it as a weak link. Um, obviously, you don't want to strengthen the whole chain while a specific area is, you know, injured or weak. So that's why you would generally go with uh, very isolation or isometrics first. You want to strengthen that link before you're going to work the whole thing because the, the weak link is always going to be the area that is going to have the possibility for injury, especially if you've been injured there. So you don't right. want to go too hard on uh, things that can stress the whole chain or you bring up the weak link uh, strength and otherwise work capacity. That really fits into training too, right? And, you know, I remember and in overcoming gravity, especially you do a lot on that. Like what, if you're looking at progressions for, you know, the planche or, you know, muscle up or something like that, you have to look at all of the all of the links, and, and I think it's the same way in, in rehab and, and injury. And so th I think that's another thing I really en enjoyed over the last fifteen years or so is is really this interplay between what is rehab, what is physical training, because you know initially in terms of physical therapy, very poor on exercise progression, right? As a as a profession, I thought I thought it was. I mean, uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And then over, you know, from the, the nineties and early two thousands and on that, it got so much better, so much better. 
Um, and so moving on for other questions, you know, here, there's another one. I like the way we structured this because this is sort of answered already too. It's like, well, this person is, how do you get rid of li lingering elbow tendonitis? You know, every time I start to get active, it flares up. Uh, and then this per other person below it says the same thing of like, I'm in the same boat. I go too hard climbing uh, in January, push through, and then it got worse. So you're talking about continuing, they're talking about continuing flare-ups here. What would you, uh, what would you say to people that sort of kind of go up, go down, go up, go down, and it sort of continues on like that? Yeah, nine, nine times out of 10 there, it's just too fast progression. You just have to take it very slow. So like if you're, you know, jumping back into climbing, which a lot of people really want to do, you're going to have to, you know, and, and you're primarily a boulder, you may have to go to, you know, top rope and just do maybe like two, three very easy climbs just to start because you want to see how it responds. You don't want to, you want to go too high intensity or too high volume because that is going to um, usually with a very reactive tendon, it's going to cause a lot of those symptoms. And then, okay, if it's causing symptoms, is your function strength decreasing again? Okay, that's not good at all. Um, you need to modulate the volume intensity to uh, basically the work capacity of the tendon at that particular point. Um, one other thing I found, especially with uh, golfer's elbow, is um, since uh, it's the uh, common flexor tendon is composed of uh, a lot of different muscles connecting into it, um, hitting it from a lot of different angles usually helps. Um, so what we're talking about there is uh, like wrist flexion type dumbbell wrist flexion exercises uh, to hit the uh, flexor carpi and carpi uh, radialis and carpi ulnaris, uh, pronation supination to hit the pronator terrace, and then also um, finger curl type movements to hit the uh, flexor digitorum superficialis. So all those connect into the tendon um, and then having an exercise in rehab for all three of those I found uh, is generally particularly helpful. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I speculated that maybe it hits the, so tendinopathy is not a thing where it affects the whole tendon. Usually there is just a small portion of the tendon that becomes um, either reactive uh, in disrepair or degenerative. Um, and the rest of the tendon is healthy and generally asymptomatic. Um, so I, I speculated that possibly hitting it from all the variations may, you know, strengthen the tendon the healthy portions of the tendon in a way that can help, uh, I guess, compensate for the injured portion. And then also doing an exercise for the more injured area to bias it, to bias that part of the tendon may, um, if, if it's not degenerative, may help to uh, specifically rehab that as well. Um, so yeah, hitting hit what well, from what I've experienced in consultations at least, uh, yeah, hitting all three of them tends to be um, a lot more effective than just doing you know one or two exercises like uh, you know just the wrist flexing exercises and pronation supination. Um, and I, I guess I'm not really sure why it's that effective, but I get I think my speculation is maybe on point. Um, 
I've seen some people say, well, um, you know, with the, you know, you're, you're not, the whole tendon is being stressed, but um, usually in a lot of the tendinopathy research, you see a particular wear pattern on the tendon, like the rotator cuff, uh, the supraspinaeus, usually um, the tendinopathy is in like the an- uh, anterior superior portion of the tendon, not like the posterior region. So usually there's a certain wear pattern in a lot of the tendinopathies uh, based on the particular activity you're doing. So I, I think uh, spreading out the rehab to a lot of different exercises that can hit the tendon in slightly different ways is usually probably helpful. Yeah, I think especially in terms of uh, with the elbow and shoulder, you know, you're looking at really such a wide range of of activities that affect it, right? Uh, the yeah. elbow throughout the day, shoulders throughout the day, n- not even just in in sports like climbing and, and you know other kind of higher level activities like that. So to parse that out a little bit, the first part of of you know climbing different routes or, or changing uh, you know the the difficulty level, I think that's important to kind of summarize because it can take a lot of trial and error, right? Yeah. Uh, you can always tell people, Oh, you, you need to go a little bit easier, right? Then, then what you're doing now, but you know, that's not as helpful as, okay, let's analyze, you know, what you're doing right now. What is an incremental step below that or, or below that? And, and sometimes it's even helpful to say, let's go super far below it and then kind of ramp up again. I think. Exactly. Yeah. You know, Right. Yeah, I think it's interesting, you know, so if, if we talk about climbing, it's already built in like that, right? Because you have like certain levels, right? Whether it's indoor climbing or, or bouldering or outside, you know, this route is harder. You know, this particular way of doing it is harder. So that's nice, you know, for this particular example. Uh, and then in other things like just even say recreational strength training or, or body weight training where you're looking through different progressions. It's nice when they have like a list and you can tell this person, Oh, you need to do you know, this level then, or you've been doing this level and you're kind of here. Let's say, take it two down. So I think that's, that's really important. The other thing here, uh, the last part about, you know, hitting the muscle from different angles is, is, is super interesting to me because that's, you know, almost like the bodybuilding thing. Like how, how many different ways can we, can we approach this muscle? And, and in that case, they're like to make it bigger. Well, in, in this case, it's, it's to make it more tolerant and more conditioned. So exactly. That, yeah, that's awesome. Um, so there's other questions here, which is uh, it's a little off topic, but do you have, uh, so what's your opinion on like, here he's like sugars, olive oil. So basically, is there any type of food or or any type of things like that? Uh, probably, let's even say supplements there that for for recovery for you know if you're older, you know all of that type of things. What what what's your take on that, Steve? Uh, yeah, the research is pretty sparse, but in general, the <laughs> the supplements are fairly questionable. Like there's. As some of the newer research on possibly some supplementing like uh, the specific um, building blocks of tendon exercise. So you, you would supplement the specific building blocks of tendon, such as 
uh, gelatin, which is collagen, and vitamin C, um, which help, helps hold the collagen together. Um, you would supplement that before exercise, and supposedly there's might, might be increases in collagen synthesis, uh, but and, you know, from what we know from degenerative tendons, they don't necessarily have to be, um, I guess, fixed. The degeneration is still there, but the tendon is able to become, you know, normal uh, and functioning and healthy and able to do sports again. So you don't necessarily need to increase collagen synthesis above a certain level to get good outcomes. So I would say it's just generally fairly questionable so far. Uh, maybe there's like, you know, a few percentage point gains from, you know, focusing on, uh, you know, supplementing collagen and vitamin C, but it's not something that is very effective. Um, but to go back to the larger point of food, obviously, uh, if something is you're allergic to something or, you know, that is going to be a bigger issue of, you know, there's uh, your body's under a lot of stress probably not going to be functioning as well. Um, the, you know, trial and error elimination method of removing certain foods or add it, and then for a few weeks and then adding certain foods for a few weeks uh, tends to be, I guess, the, the best method if you haven't done any, like, allergy tests or anything. So. Right. I think, uh, you know, a lot of that kind of comes from, uh, so you know, the sugar and the fats and all of that is, uh, are we encouraging inflammatory, you know, the whole thing of uh, inflammatory, anti-inflammatory. That's, that kind of goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning. Uh, you do need a certain level of kind of inflammatory process. And so eating like a lot of antioxidants or decreasing your sugar or, you know, upping your fish oil versus, you know, decreasing your trans fats, you know, these are types of things that, yeah, could be helpful, but also might be just taken considerably out of context right yeah the, the that reminds me of some of the, like the big uh vitamin supplement studies uh that actually show like no effect at all yeah. because most people the the only people is going to help is the deficient people the people who already have enough of the vitamins from you know regular food are going to be fine Right. That's, that's the really hard part about this. And again, it goes back to a little bit earlier and like being so reductionist, what, you know, what is the one thing that is going to help? And it's really natural and, and, you know, to fall into that, of course, because if you're like, if you're thinking, well, if I can do this one thing, then good, I'm going to be able to get out of it. And unfortunately, it's not like that. You know, I wish it was. It'd be so much easier. That, that goes into here. One of the next question that's kind of random, but it, you know, I think it's it's it fits into the bigger picture. Uh, this person is asking, you know, what do you? What's your opinion on a medial nerve block in treating lower back pain? Uh, for those, uh, let, let let me just kind of frame this a little bit. There's a lot of uh, oh, how do I how do I say this? Um, it's, it's back to the pain science where, okay, nerves are the, the whole thing before the old way of thinking is that these nerves are causing pain, right? Uh, this person is asking about you know, low back pain in particular and a particular nerve block in particular. But the, the idea was, and I've seen this throughout my career, is that 
there's pain generators, right? Steve, there's pain generators. And if you get rid of the pain generator, you get rid of the pain. So that's essentially what this, this person is asking. And whether it's right or, or wrong, you know, that it's, it's hard. <laughs> How am I going to say it's right? <laughs> what am I going to say it's wrong? But that's sort of where this question is coming from. Uh, and it could be applied here. Like, okay, we have a tendon, tendinopathy. So what do you do? You cut it out. You cut out that part, right? I, did, I, I don't remember. In the book, did you talk a little bit about uh, the prior medical intervention where they would go and uh, debride and, and doing all those types of things? Yeah, we discussed the surgery a little bit. Um, it, it's generally helpful in Achilles, at least. Uh, at least the you get about 75% positive outcomes. And uh, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, right. it's like... Uh, <laughs> They, they've also done like sham surgeries and, right. you know, you know, a bunch, you know, a large portion of the people actually get better. Is it because they're thinking that surgery is going to fix their problem and it's like a very positive outcome type of right. thing there? Or is it just... It's hard. I, I don't... Me and Steve... Oh, so hard. Me and Steve are laughing about this a little bit just because we know, you know, we've, we've read these studies and we've seen patients and... And I, it shouldn't be making light of it, but it also goes to the larger picture of um, we really have to get out of the mindset of one thing is going to help or you need to get fixed, especially yeah. in terms of, of pain. Uh, all of these nerve blocks or nerve ablations, right? That's another thing too, is uh, uh, especially in back pain, is, is, uh, is uh, essentially destroying the nerve. So there's nerve blocks where you, you know, you have chemical uh, interruptions and then there's, you know, the nerve ablation where you're essentially destroying the nerves. One of the things, and I think this is important to talk about, is that sure, they've seen it helps, but then that shit grows back, yeah. right? The, 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 our body, it's, it's brutal and that's why we're laughing is because we've seen this. And it's not that we're laughing at the people that are having pain and, and trying to figure out how to get out of it, but there's been so many things like this, and this is just an example. Uh, and it's why, in, in, especially in your book and overcoming tendonitis and, and the other works that you're doing, is is getting out of that reductionist uh, model. Yeah, a lot of a lot of it go, goes down to pain education and. I talked about a little bit about this earlier, but uh, just to delve into that a little bit more, uh, the pain system in the body is basically like an alarm system uh, that goes, you know, from the body to the brain and back. And uh, a lot of times, especially in chronic cases, which is usually, uh, we generally classify about three months or longer uh, if your pain, it, like if you've been resting a lot and been doing rehab and your pain isn't getting any better, uh, it's a higher likelihood that you're getting chronic pain symptoms uh, three plus months out. Uh, and especially if you've had it more than a year or two. Um, and basically the system can get out of whack where uh, the nervous system gets uh, more sensitized to um, having this pain signal occur. So that's why I refer to it more of as a habit you know, you're, any type of normal movement you do after, you know, the tissues have healed completely and you're still having pain, you're having a normal movement, uh, maybe even with a very light weight, which shouldn't 
necessarily cause any more damage or pain, right. but you're having that normal movement and you're getting a lot of pain. It's very disproportionate to the types of movements you're doing. And so, yeah, you got to do specific physical therapy exercises to break that cycle of pain so that, you know, it, it doesn't go away immediately. Usually it'll start to decrease, you know, over a um, couple weeks, uh, maybe six months in some cases, but uh, almost, almost always it eventually goes away completely. Um, sometimes not always, but uh, a lot of the time it does go away completely if you have a lot of uh, interventions addressing breaking that habit of pain. Yeah, absolutely. Super important. I, I think that's something that we can't repeat enough. And, you know, I think almost every time I'm on a podcast talking about any kind of pain, I try to put that in. It's so important. Super important. Uh, next is... I, I, think this, that's, that's, I think that's why a lot of the physical therapy kind of fails uh, right. in the clinic. Uh, the physical therapists may not have necessarily been educated on uh, some of the newer pain science. So they're just uh, trying to treat the, uh, patients... Um, you know, chronic pain as something that is acute and needs just to be rehabbed uh, normally. Um, whereas, oh, yeah, whereas, you know, if you had educated them about pain and then told them, had them go through a lot of pain, uh, the chronic pain breaking exercises, they would start to uh, have that chronic pain go down. Um, and maybe you don't even need to, you know, do a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the super strengthening or super functional exercises, you just need to educate them and do a lot of the pain breaking exercises and it goes away. Oh, absolutely. Super important. That, that kind of goes on to the next question, which I think is, is interesting. You know, uh, this person says, you know, thoughts on heavy, slow resistance protocol for tendon health, uh, you know, when to apply the load and a tempo versus when to rest. I know we went over, you know, you went over this a little bit. Uh, it's fluid and, and it's all of that. But uh, any particular insights into, I'm not sure if this is in regards to like just whether it's eccentric training or, or you know, uh, heavy, slow resistance. I wonder if that's a trademark thing or something too. But uh, uh, yeah, it's one of the, four different rehab protocols we saw in the science uh, that we talked about in the book. Um, in general, heavy slow is basically uh, you're, go, you're starting with about three to four sets of 15 reps um, with a three second eccentric and three second concentric motion. And then over time, you're going to increase the weight and decrease the reps uh, progressively down to like six reps eventually. And, this does actually work effectively in, uh, I think it's around like 50 to 70% of cases. Um, <laughs> but it didn't work in some, um, and I think, uh, especially because it's very aggressive increasing the intensity, it doesn't work a lot in the tendons with very high irritability reactivity. So if you have a tendon that may ha be having, like, has very low reactivity, it'll tend to work well. Um, but if you have a very high reactive one, it uh, will probably definitely not work well. Um, and from our investigation of the research on like tempo, uh, usually uh, I think one study did like one second uh, time under tension and like six seconds and 12 seconds or something like that. Uh, basically the one with uh, 
six seconds did about the best. So, um, yeah, oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yes, uh, it's somewhere around those numbers, but uh, yeah, I generally recommend about a two to three second eccentric and a one to two second eccentric. So pretty close to heavy, slow protocol. Um, and then, you know, if you're getting back to a sport, eventually you have to start speeding the tempo up to get back to, uh, you know, running or explosive exercise. Yeah. I think that's one of the benefits and drawbacks to like having a, a strict protocol. And one of the benefits is you, you know, where you kind of have to head and then you're looking at like what you just said was super interesting. You know, you, you're looking at around six seconds versus like a fast, you know, uh, seems to be better. You know, those types of things you can really take with you. But uh, the drawback would be, you know, forging ahead in the protocol just because it says, right. Yeah. Like you, like you said here, like it depends on your reactivity and your irritability. Uh, and this goes to what we're talking about with recognizing that there's going to be a lot of trial and error or hopefully not too much trial and error, but there is going to be that in, in terms of what you can tolerate. Um, this kind of goes to the next question here. This person, you know, we kind of answered this a little bit earlier, like how tips on how to assess or auto regulate, you know, load balancing for recovery. This person specifically with uh, tennis elbow or lateral epicondylitis. Uh, we, we talked a lot about that. It's sort of like finding your, your baseline and where are you in terms of your irritability for that baseline, I think is, is the main thing. Yeah, and generally start below uh, or at, at or below what is that baseline and then you know, slowly work your way up. Don't try to, you know, add sets or reps every workout. You know, every other workout is generally uh, better, especially for very highly reactive tendons. Um, having that slow progression because uh, you can always speed it up if it's, you know, if you're responding well and it's... Uh, you know, getting, getting them better quickly. But if you start with too much, you, you can not necessarily set yourself back, but it, it takes longer to find out what is working effectively. Right. Right. This is where it really, it's hard to be patient, but it can really pay off to be patient because it essentially t- it will take you longer if yeah. you try to rush it. Right. That's, that's one of the things you now there's something philosophical about that. I think, <laughs> Yeah, and one of the big things uh, to add to that is like uh, what what you usually call like the flare-ups and setbacks aren't really a big deal since tendinopathy is an overuse, primarily overuse exercise. You're not going to do any significant damage to the tendon in one rehab session, right? Unless you have like tendinopathy and then went, ran a marathon or something, you're not going to do any significant damage or anything like that. It, you're just going to have it be a little more irritable. So um, there's actually nothing like very negative that is occurring. So you kind of get that out of your head. Yeah. That's super important because that's another thing too. uh, You know, people are telling you, Oh, you take it slow, take it easy. And then it's easy to go beyond that and go, well, I gotta be so careful. I gotta be so careful because I'm going to hurt myself if I do this wrong. And it's important just like you said, to realize that's probably not going to happen unless you just egregiously, you know, just being really crazy about it. It's probably not going to happen. It's just going to make you again, flare up. It's probably going to make you sore more sore than you need to be for a few days, but you can get out of it. 
I, I think the whole thing of taking it easy and progressing slow is the main point out of that is that so you can continue on and you don't have uh, unnecessary increased pain, unnecessary flare-ups. That's, yeah. that's the main point. And uh, that's super important because, again, that takes us out of that nocebo of, of okay, you can't move, you, know, you got to stay in this cast, you, know, you got to do this. Yeah. You know, and this, these are the extremes that you know, we really want to avoid. And, and again, so, so uh, important. And uh, really what's been super helpful about the pain science, and especially in the last five to 10 years, is really understanding when we talk to patients, when we talk to clients, you know, what are we saying to them and what are they interpreting from that? Yeah, you don't want to say anything that, you know, kind of builds up that catastrophization pain where, yeah. okay, it's something to avoid at all costs or like it, if you have any, then it's very negative thing that is going to affect your rehab. It's, it's really yeah. yeah, unfortunately, that's... You know, the alarm system is messed up a little bit. So I got to address that, but you know, re rehab is, you know, often very straightforward and you, as long as you're not aggressive at it, then it, it's successful. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's, it hasn't been like that for a long time. And so now that's why we're really uh, harping on it and really uh, maybe even exaggerating it to some, because it was really detrimental before for, for doctors to tell you, Oh, your knee is shot. You know, your arthritis is, you know, super, super bad. Uh, your bone on bone, all of these types of things really stick in, in your head. Like, well, I guess I'm screwed then. Yeah. Right. Right. And so, again, can't repeat it enough that most of the time you're fine. You're fine. We just, you and your therapist or your trainer need to just figure out the best, uh, plan for you to improve your conditioning, improve your tolerance. And I think that's massive. Uh, one last thing, because I know you're busy, but uh, here, this is, an, this is a really common question. and It's to stretch and how to or not to stretch for recovery. I think that's a, a really common question and it's an important one. Yeah, so for tendinopathy specifically, uh, what uh, a lot of studies are basically saying is Stretching is actually doesn't help, doesn't hurt, uh, except if you've lost range of motion. So I, I guess the premise behind that is lost range of motion um, and you're doing, you know, exercise. There's a shorter range of motion for the muscle tendon to absorb force. So potentially with less range of motion, uh, there's more force on a tendon in a specific range. So that can contribute to overuse. But Otherwise, you know, if you have normal range of motion as your non-affected limb uh, or like compared to, uh, I guess, normal physical therapy standards, uh, you don't need to really stretch at all for tendinopathy or really any other type of thing. Unless yeah. you have flexibility goals, at least. All right. And I think that's another thing, too, which I why I think this is an interesting question is, you know, what are your goals or what are you trying to get out of it in, in this particular uh, context? Is, is stretching going to help your pain and in, in, in this tendonitis? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Probably not, right? That type of thing. Uh, 
and so that's it, it kind of goes back to this motif of you know what is the one thing that's going to help or should we throw a whole bunch of stuff at it and see what happens uh and so that's the to me that's what it is like shotgun approach versus oh let's go one at a time you know there's a balance there and and what you're looking at and stretching in particular and we've always said this too you know within you know our company and, and also you know you said it in overcoming gravity all these things stretching is a means to an end for getting into positions right getting into your your uh if you're a climber that's a good one yeah it totally helps for you able to get footholds and and handholds if you're a gymnast well yeah you have to it's part of the sport but if you're not and you're you're kind of doing fine and you don't feel stiff when the things that you want to do maybe you don't need to stretch right yeah i saw a study on sprinters and like stretching their hamstrings too much actually decreased their speed so right. they need that stretch shortened cycle with a relatively tighter hamstring to you know get their speed up to the max so right absolutely much stretching can be detrimental to your your goals right it, it can be good or bad it's all in context i think and i i, I like that because that's a, a sort of like for that's a good statement for for everything and rehab training and, and all of that well thanks a lot steve i know uh so that was a good there's a lot to talk about but uh Thanks for much for your time. I know you're super busy. What uh, what we're going to do is we're going to have different show notes. Uh, we'll have links to uh, to Steve's site and all of his uh, projects. What's uh, what's coming up for you? What's new uh, coming up for you? Uh, actually, kind of in transition, I guess. <laughs> so I was thinking about writing another book, but I haven't selected a topic. Um, maybe potentially setting up. Uh, like a workout app or oh wow uh, maybe uh starting to get a patreon online we'll see about that but, awesome yeah, uh, so i kind of in transition right now uh enjoying the time with my boys and yeah just trying to work on consultations and uh for training and injuries as well that's awesome so for all you're listening uh if you have any other questions for for steve or for us uh hit us up howdy at gmb.io and again uh we can direct you over to steve and, and give you different links and and all of that well thanks again steve really appreciate it thanks for coming on thanks for having me